welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. I'm really excited today to be launching a new series here at Follow Baptist. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the first letter written to Timothy. And I'm really excited about that because I've always found this letter to be a challenging letter, but also a really encouraging letter. And the reason I find it so encouraging is because it's an older guy actually sowing into a younger guy in ministry. Now, being a younger guy in ministry and, and for some of us being young in faith, it's really encouraging to read some of Paul's thoughts and instructions in this letter. Uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, as well as the book of Titus, are known uh, as the pastoral epistles. And the reason they're known as that is because um, Paul is writing to Timothy and Titus, who are both young men who are overseeing church congregations. And so in this letter, he deals with issues such as Christian living, uh, doctrine, and leadership. Now, over the next six weeks, as we go through this series, I want you to keep in mind a couple of things. And these two things I want you to keep at the very forefront of your mind as we go through this series. And both of the the words I want you to remember both start with the letter I. The first thing I want you to remember is intimacy. Uh, It doesn't take long to get into the letter to realize that there's a genuine intimacy with Paul and with Timothy. In verse 2 of the passage today, Paul addresses the letter to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Uh, In 2 Timothy, the second letter he wrote to Timothy, he he starts it in a similar way. He says to Timothy, my dear son. These are terms of intimacy. And as you look at the detail and the intricacy of these letters, it's really clear by the amount of effort Paul put into it that he's got a deep love for this young man. It's highly likely that Timothy was converted under Paul's ministry on the first missionary journey. As we read through the New Testament, we see that Timothy accompanied Paul on the second missionary journey and also on the third missionary journey. And so over years, through all the trials of life and all the good times of life, the ups and downs, the in-betweens, Paul and Timothy have developed a really strong connection and relationship with one another. I think that Timothy looked up to Paul as a bit of a hero. Now, I've shared this before in church, but when I was a a young fellow, I had a hero, and my hero was a St Kilda footballer by the name of Tony Lockett. And uh, I remember when I was a young guy, Dad used to take us to Moorabbin Football Ground um, to watch Tony Lockett play, and I used to be up on his shoulders, and uh, people loved him. We used to go and stand in an area of the ground which was known as the animal enclosure. Now, you might think that's strange. Uh, There's no animals in the enclosure, but if you saw some of the men that were surrounding us in that spot, you would understand exactly why they called it that. But we would go there and we would watch Tony Lockett play. And even though there were some pretty wild men standing around in that area of the ground, the one thing that united them, aside from barracking for St Kilda, was that they loved Tony Lockett. And I'll never forget the roar every time he went near the ball, uh, every time he took a mark or belted someone or kicked a goal, there would be a huge roar right around the ground. And as a little guy, I really looked up to this guy. He was a man mountain of a man. Uh, He was a great footballer. Um, In my older years, I realized he probably wasn't a great role model. Um, But back when I was young, I didn't understand that. And I remember uh, in the lounge room with a balloon or out in the backyard with a footy, uh, pretending to play matches where St Kilda always won. And it always finished the same way, that Tony Lockett would mark the ball with a few seconds left, and after the siren, he'd kick a goal and St Kilda would win. Uh, Obviously, that's just my imagination, because that doesn't happen (laughs) in real life. 
but he was my hero. And I think in this letter, Timothy's hero was Paul. Paul was small in stature, but he was a giant in faith. He was an incredible man. And so Timothy had a real reverence for Paul. He looked up to him, he admired him, and I imagine he probably aspired to be like him. And so what we see in these letter, in this letter, is a typical mentor relationship, but I think it's actually more than that. We see that Paul has a real fatherly love and burden to see Timothy grow and thrive in his life, in his faith, and in his ministry. You get the sense that Paul would do anything for this young guy. Now, today is our first day back in church after a couple of weeks of holiday. Um, Probably wouldn't call it a holiday, but we were on a break for a couple of weeks. And most of you would know that we uh, had a break because Kim, my wife, um, was having open heart surgery. And so the day came for her to be checked into hospital. It was uh, Easter Monday, and so we went to hospital to check her in, and then the operation was going to be on uh, Easter Tuesday. Um, Before we left, uh, my mum was minding the kids at that stage, and we noticed that Lenny, our son, our three-year-old son, had been showing a few strange symptoms in the last couple of weeks. And so we asked mum when we went to the hospital if she wouldn't mind taking Lenny to the doctor and just uh, making sure that he was okay. And so we went off to the hospital and we checked in and uh, about an hour later mum rang and said "Um, we're on our way to the hospital with Lenny. And I said well there's no point coming in yet, Kim hasn't had the operation, Um, we're just sort of sitting around waiting so there's no point. And she said no, no you don't understand, Uh, he's being admitted into hospital. Now mum had taken him to the doctor and told her the symptoms and she had taken a, a, a blood level, a blood test and uh, when the test came back, the, the reading was off the scale. Now, so much so that she left the room and she came back with another machine thinking that the first one must have been broken. Uh, she did the test again and it once again revealed that his blood level was once again off the scale. And so um, the doctor wrote a letter and said, gave it to, to mum and said, take him straight to emergency, give them the letter and they'll take him straight through. And so I met uh, mum and Lenny down in emergency uh, we went through, they did another blood test and they confirmed that Lenny uh, has type 1 diabetes. Now, this is fairly rare for uh, an infant. Um, he's three and a half. There's about oh, just over two and a half thousand, I think, kids in Victoria that, that suffer from juvenile diabetes. And to be honest, I didn't know a heap about it. Um, and so I just knew that diabetes wasn't a good thing. And I knew that type 1 was the worst version rather than type 2. And so I knew that it wasn't good news. And so as we went into emergency, they did the tests and Lenny was admitted into hospital. So um, for the next five days, I stayed in there with him. And so Kim was on level three and Lenny was on level four. And so it was an exciting week. It really was. Um, up and down in the elevator, I got like frequent flyer miles. It was like Kim, Lenny, Kim, Lenny, Kim, Lenny. Uh, I was getting dizzy by the end of it. But it really was a whirlwind. You know, I was kind of stressed enough already uh, about Kim and her operation. Um, but now there's a whole new thing that we had to uh, learn about. And so the first week really was just um, absorbing a whole lot of information. Um, what is diabetes? Why does he have it? Um, what do you have to do? Learning how to draw up two different insulins into a syringe and to inject it into him twice a day. Learning how to prick his finger five times a day, including 2am in the morning to work out um, where his blood levels are at. And if they're too high, what do you do? And if they're too low, what do you do? And so um, because there was so much going on and um, sitting in meetings with diabetes educators and uh, my mind was kind of blown. And so I really didn't have time to process it emotionally. Um, until the Friday night um, when he was asleep in bed and I was laying next to him in the fold-out bed and I just finished watching the football and I turned it off and I, 
I looked over at Lenny and um, he was there peacefully sleeping and it finally hit me that unless God heals him, which I believe he can and I hope he does, or unless they find a cure, Lenny's going to battle with diabetes every day for the rest of his life. And people... People say it's manageable, and it is. And um, we're really grateful to live in a country with access to affordable medication and care. But the truth is that it's going to have to be managed with around about 60 injections a month, 720 a year, including also 1,800 finger pricks. And so it's going to have to be managed every moment, every day, for the rest of his life. In that moment, as I pondered all that, it finally hit me that um, this is something he was going to go through. And in that moment, the overwhelming emotion I had is that I wish it was me rather than him. Sorry, I didn't think I'd get emotional. Um, as a parent, a mom or a dad, father, there's, there's nothing you wouldn't do for your kids, for your daughter or for your son. You just want the very best for them. That's what's going on in this letter. As we explored over the next six weeks, I want you to keep in mind that everything Paul writes down is written out of intimacy. Everything he writes down, he does with Timothy's best interests at heart. And so the first word I want you to remember over the next six weeks is the word intimacy. The second word, starting with I, is the word investment. Now, when we love people, the natural progression is that we invest into their lives. Um... We talk about investment a lot in life, but often we talk about it in financial terms. We invest in superannuation, we invest in shares, we invest in property, um, but we very rarely talk about it in terms of investing in people. But I want to say today that um, the most incredible investment we can ever make in life is to invest in people. Uh, one day, we're going to pass away in our natural life and, and we're not going to be able to take our house with us. Uh, we're not going to be able to take our bank account or our car with us. The only thing we can take with us is, is people. And so the greatest investment we can ever make in our lives is to invest in people. And um, Paul, through his life and through these letters, is investing into the life of Timothy. In fact, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he actually writes these words. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, I think this is really Paul's mode of operation. He is a guy that leads not just through his words, but he also leads through his life. I remember someone once telling me that when it comes to what you learn in leadership, there is just as much caught as there is taught. In other words, when you journey with a leader, they can teach you stuff, but you learn just as much um, from how they live their life as to as in what they say. And so it's really important that, that we... Um, uh, lead by example, because as Christians, people are always watching. They're watching our lifestyle. They're watching the way we respond in different circumstances. And so Paul is the master of this. He is a person who leads through his teaching, but he leads also predominantly through his life. And so I've called this series Pattern, because what Paul is doing is setting out a pattern for Timothy to follow in life, leadership, and faith. In his second letter, he writes these words. He says, you, Timothy... Know all about my teaching. You know all about my life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, as well as my persecutions and my sufferings. Well, how did he know all that stuff? He knew it because he journeyed with Paul. 
He'd heard his teaching, but he had observed his life. And one of the things I love about Paul is his deliberate investment as a more mature, experienced Christian into a young, developing leader. I've said on a number of occasions, one of the greatest desires of my heart is that God would use Follow Baptist Church and the people within this church to be a massive blessing in this region, that we would be people that would have an impact here and beyond, that God would use us. And one day, um, not just in the present, but also in the future, I can just imagine in a hundred years, when all of us are dead and buried, if Jesus hasn't yet returned, my prayer is that God is still using Follow Baptist Church that people are coming to know the Lord, that they are growing in their faith, that we are having an impact here. And as we plant churches in other places, my prayer is that what we invest now uh, will, will be even more powerful in the future. But the truth is, the only way that's ever going to happen is if right now, when we're an infant as a church, that we have a culture of developing and investing in people so important that we do that, that more established Christians actually take the time to deliberately and proactively invest in less experienced Christians. And so you might think to yourself, well, what could this possibly look like? Well, there's so many different ways this could work its way out. It may be that uh, an older, more experienced couple take a younger couple under their wing and every month or couple of months have lunch together, uh, speak into their marriage, speak into their faith, speak into their life. It may be that a youth leader such as Abel identifies some other youth kids that have got real potential and starts to develop them in leadership. Or maybe a missional community group leader, always looking out for people that they can encourage and develop as leaders. It may be a formal mentor relationship where you kind of meet one-on-one with someone in a cafe or in a home. You go through the word together, you pray together, you might do a soap study, you might allow the Holy Spirit to lead the conversation where it needs to go. It might be a person who loves to pray. I think Cheryl Searle is a a great example of this. She loves to pray and she just gathers other people around and she models prayer and and they they learn and grow and pray together. It may be um, formed around a common interest. You might like playing golf or you might like doing craft and you just grab a younger person or a a less mature Christian and you you go and play golf with them or you do craft with them and, and once again you speak into their life and you build relationship. It may be done through serving. You know, it's a great way to get to know people is to serve together. And so if you're serving tea and coffee in the kitchen or setting up and packing up, you might just identify some other people that you can kind of bring alongside you. And as you serve together and teach them what to do, you actually build relationship. There are so many ways that we can invest into the lives of others. If you're a Christian here today, I, I would imagine the vast majority of you can think of one or two people at least in your life that have invested in your life. And if it wasn't for their investment, you wouldn't be where you are today. I can think of a couple of youth group leaders I had when I was younger. Uh, I was doing a whole lot of stupid stuff. And yet they just faithfully kept catching up with me. They kept speaking the word into my life. They kept encouraging me, even though I, I failed to respect them so much of the time. I still look back at those two guys and they're two of the most influential people in my life. And so it's really important that we as Christians actually uh, take that on board for all of us, not just the pastors or the leaders, and see it as a responsibility we have to invest into the lives of other people. It's an integral part of our faith. Now, I really hope and pray today that some of you would be encouraged and challenged to actually be looking out for someone to invest into. But I think there's something I need to mention if that's the case. I want to encourage you not just to look for 
the stereotypical leader types. I've fallen for this trap before where you go for charisma over character and you're just looking for those bold, strong kind of people. Um, Let me talk for a moment to the introverts in the room. Uh, If you're an introvert in the room, put your hand up. You're not going to do it, are you? The introverts, they're they're shrinking back in their seats. I know who you are. Uh, All the extroverts are like, pick me, pick me. Um, If you're an introvert in the room, I want to speak to you today. Uh, You don't have to put your hand up. I know you're terrified of doing that. But if you're an introvert, I want to encourage you. Because we get the distinct impression in these letters that Timothy is an introvert rather than an extrovert. And that should be a great encouragement to all the introverts here in the room. Uh, for, for the extroverts, Paul might be the uh, person we look to. He's the out there guy. He's the loud, strong evangelist. He's the bold, courageous leader. But if you're an introvert, Timothy should be the person whose poster's on your wall at home. He's the poster boy for introverts. He's a guy that's a little bit timid a little bit shy, and yet he should be such an encouragement to us because this timid, shy young man was used in incredible ways by God, traveling the world, preaching the gospel, being an evangelist, leading people to the Lord, and at this stage of his life, leading a church that's reputed to have become very large. You see, when we think of leadership, we have this stereotypical idea of what a leader is. We think of someone like a Jeff Kennett, a loud, brash, bold, um, you know, opinionated, uh, intelligent, depending on whether you're Labor or Liberal voter, uh, kind of person. And we think that's what a leader's like. Or we think about William Wallace from Braveheart. You know, he's a, a big warrior. He's going to take on anyone and he's going to win the battle and, and people are inspired to follow him. Or we think of someone like Superman, you know, the, the metrosexual, the handsome, strong, muscly guy that is, uh, you know, does the miraculous and he's a bit of a superhero. And we often think that leaders are like that. But the truth is that not all leaders are like that. Not all leaders are strong, bold, loud extroverts. Um, some of them are a lot quieter behind the scenes. Someone like Mother Teresa is someone who wasn't a big, loud, strong leader, but an incredibly influential woman in our world. A few years ago, before I was in paid ministry, I was at a church that decided to plant a campus in the Frankston region. Great mission field there and a great opportunity. And um, I was living in Caram Downs with Kim at the stage, at that stage. And so it made sense that we would go and support this campus. And so I was asked to become part of the core team. And so I did that. And um, my job at the, court, at the new campus was to lead the services and to oversee our youth and young adult ministry. Uh, not just oversee it, but pioneer it. We didn't have any kids or young adults at that stage. Uh, we saw it really grow in the next few years, which was great. But when it was first announced that we'd be going to help on the core team of this campus, I really naively thought that some of my great friends at the main campus would be really excited about Pioneer something like I was. And I really expected and hoped that some of my close friends would say, yes, Luke, uh, I'm going to come and serve with you. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do this together. We're going to be used by God to pioneer something new. And I thought they'd be really inspired like I was. But the truth is, it was announced and not one person came forward and put their hand up to help. And so instead of panicking, I did the only thing I knew to do, and that was to pray. God, you're the God of the harvest. You say the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, and so you encourage us to pray for more workers. And so I prayed, and guess what happened? Nothing. (laughs) The next two weeks, nothing happened. No one came forward. And then one night at our young adult ministry, one kid came up to me. I'd known this kid for a couple of years. But I didn't know him that well because he was on the extreme end of being an introvert. Um, and so I talked to him before, but I can hardly remember what his voice sounded like. He was one of those one-word answer people. 
And so you would say, hey, mate, how's your, how's your weekend? Good. How's university going at the moment? Good. You enjoy it? Yep. How's the family? Good. What did you get up to on the weekend? Nothing. And within 30 seconds, you feel like you've exhausted every possible avenue of conversation. And so you would gracefully and swiftly exit yourself from the conversation, which was going nowhere. But this young boy came up to me this day and he initiated a conversation. I was a bit blown away that he would do that. He'd never done that before. It was always me initiating. But I was even more flabbergasted with what he had to say. He said, Luke, I've been praying about the new campus and I feel like God is prompting me to come and help you pioneer youth and young adults. Now, at that stage, I had to make sure that my face didn't reflect what my heart was thinking. (laughs) So my face went like this. That's awesome news, mate. Hey, so good. We need more leaders. Uh, Let's talk more. Inside, I'm angry at God. I'm going, God, I I prayed for more leaders. You've given me nobody, and now you've given me a mute. Someone who who I can't even connect with and he won't even connect with the kids. What am I going to do with this kid? It's it's probably more difficult than than a blessing. What am I going to do with this kid? Uh, But over the next five years, let me tell you, he became one of the most uh, powerful, one of the most effective, one of the most faithful leaders that I had. Uh, Thankfully, more leaders came on board. Some were kind of charismatic and loud. Uh, Some of them were kind of uh, flaky, in and out, up and down. But at the same time, this one kid was just solid. The whole time, just faithfully serving. And it was such a joy to see the growth in his life, in his leadership, to see him get alongside other kids and to be an encouragement. And to this very day, he's still serving in ministry. Uh, God taught me some really um, important lessons through that situation. Number one, um, be very careful what you pray about. Number two, don't judge a book by its cover. But number three, God uses all people to lead. Listen to what Paul says in his second letter to Timothy. He says, Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The encouragement for you this morning is this, that no matter what personality you've got, whether you're an introvert, an extrovert, or somewhere in between, God can use you in significant ways. Don't limit God's power based on your personality, even if you're timid, because God's given you that personality for a reason. He designed you that way. And when you are filled with the Spirit of God, God can do incredible things. There's no limits on what He can do through our lives as we allow the Spirit to to empower us, to guide us, to lead us, and to use us. And so if you're an introvert here today, you can have a great uh, ministry because it takes all types to reach all types. But don't just limit yourself to reaching other introverts because God could do things through you that are incredibly surprising and incredibly powerful. Uh, when I first married my wife, she was an incredible introvert. I, to be completely honest, I used to dread um, you know, having dinner parties because I always felt this burden to keep the conversation going. Uh, Kim wouldn't offer too much in terms of conversation. Uh, the truth is I probably talk too much. Uh, she didn't talk enough. Uh, I think I haven't changed. She has. Um, but I used to dread those things. So I had to keep the convo going and, and somehow try and include Kim in the conversation. Um, through our marriage, I think early on, I put a little bit of pressure on her and that pushed her the other way. But over time, I've seen Kim develop to the point where together we can step out and plant a church and, and I can see her lead a couple of 
uh, you know, music play groups and really develop and grow in her leadership. And so I thought I'd mention that this morning as an encouragement for you, that whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, God can use you. I know for mentioning that I'm going to be killed this afternoon. Um, you know, Kim had open heart surgery, Lenny's got diabetes, I got strangled. Um, it's just the way it works. But uh, I just thought it would be an encouragement to see uh, what God's done in the life of Kim and what God can do in the lives of each of us as we trust him. And so when you look to invest in someone, don't just look for the stereotype, look for those with godly character, look for those who are humble enough to learn whether they're introverted or extroverted or in between. This is what we see here in this letter. Paul, he's doing this in Timothy's life. He sees that he's a timid young man, that he probably doubts himself, that he probably thinks, I couldn't possibly do what Paul has done. I'm only young, I'm inexperienced, I'm not loud, I'm not bold, I'm not extroverted. How could God possibly use me? But from an incredible intimacy and a love that Paul had for this young man, he then invested into his life. He made a decision to look through the personality and to see the potential. It's so important that we as Christians uh, look for the potential in other people. And so the big idea for today is simply this, that investing into other people is not just a good idea, it's a God idea. We see it modelled by Paul into the life of Timothy. He later on encourages Timothy to do it in the lives of other people. We see it in Jesus, 72 disciples, a closer 12, a closer 3. He invested his time and his energy and his teaching into these young people. And as a result, we see them empowered by the Holy Spirit to turn the world upside down. I think there's so much kingdom work that is thwarted because we don't invest enough into the lives of other people. But as we invest, what we're doing is actually connecting with the very heartbeat of God. If you're a Christian here today, um, you're only a Christian here because of God's intimacy and God's investment in your life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We only love him because he first loved us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, walking away from God, rebelling, rejecting him, while we were still there, Christ died for us. What an incredible love. What an incredible intimacy that he wants to be in with each and every one of us. But I want you to notice that God's love isn't just meaningless, warm, fuzzy words or good intentions. His love for us is followed by incredible investment. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die for their sins, but will be forgiven, will be set free, will have eternal life in relationship with God. You see, God's intimacy for us is expressed most powerfully in his investment of his son. And so as God has invested in us through intimacy, uh, our intimacy for others needs to also result in investment in their lives. And so I want to challenge you today. First of all, I want to challenge those here who are immature Christians. Now, when I say immature, I don't mean that you giggle at inappropriate times or you do dumb things in your life or you still think Collingwood's going to make the finals. I'm not talking about that kind of immaturity. Um, I'm just giving Esther a break today. Um, I'm talking about the kind of immaturity you haven't been a Christian for a while. 
uh, for very long. You haven't been uh, a Christian that's really grown in your faith. As the Apostle Paul says, uh, you're still on milk rather than solid food. You just haven't really developed in your faith. If you're an immature Christian here today, I want to challenge you um, to make sure that by the end of this year, you're not in the same place. I really sensed as I was preparing that there's some people here today and you feel like you're stuck. You haven't grown. You haven't moved forward in your faith. And I want to pray today that the power of the Holy Spirit would shift you from there to, to grow this year in your faith. And one of the most powerful ways you can grow is by praying and identifying somebody who can sow into your life. And so I'd encourage you to look in this community or even beyond this community to find someone uh, of real faith, of integrity, someone who's further along uh, in their, their following of Jesus. And I want to encourage you to be bold, to step out and to ask whether they would take the time to invest deliberately into your life this year. Now, on the other side of the coin, uh, if you are a mature Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, you know the word of God well, I want to challenge you by asking you this question this morning. The question is, who are you investing in? If the answer is nobody, then I want to challenge you this year to identify through prayer at least one person who you can invest in this year, that you can deliberately, proactively catch up with this person and invest into their life. So important that we do that. So I want to finish this sermon today um, by, by also talking about what we need to invest. Uh, you can have a bad investment. Uh, you can have a good investment financially, and I think it's the same spiritually. We need to be very careful about what we're investing into people's life. And in this first chapter, I think uh, Paul outlays the two most important things for him to invest in Timothy's life, for him to then invest in the life of others. And the two things that stand out for me in chapter one are God's word and God's grace. I am regularly surprised by the lack of understanding that so many Christians have on who God is. Now, they make statements like, my God would do this and my God would say that. And I hear those statements. Uh, the problem is I just can't reconcile that God with the God that I know. Um, that might be the God of their imagination, but it's not the God of Scripture. Uh, God has revealed himself to us by his word. And so if we don't understand who God is, we, we tend to try and um, mold God into our own image. We try and, um, you know... Imagine a God that would fit into our thoughts and our wants and our desires and our lifestyle. But the thing about God is that God's not a God that we can kind of squeeze into our preferential box. He's a God whose, whose ways are higher than our ways. Uh, his understanding's beyond what we can comprehend. And if I was God, maybe I wouldn't do things the same way as he's done it. But if I was God, uh, you'd, you'd be really scared. It would be a, a giant mess. And so we need to trust that God's ways are higher than our ways, and we need to understand who God actually is. You see, so often we're obsessed with conforming to the patterns of this world, but in this passage, Paul encourages Timothy not to conform to the world, but rather in verse 11, he says to conform to the gospel. Now, depending on the personality we have, we often tend to gravitate towards two extremes of our understanding of God. At one end of the scale, we see God as like a authoritarian, disciplinarian kind of God. He's harsh, he's dominating, um, he's hard. And when we have that view of God, which is often shaped by family or our own earthly father, um, the problem is that we end up being very legalistic in our faith. And we take the word and we use it like a sledgehammer, where it's all truth, but there's certainly no grace. 
But on the other side of the coin, the other extreme, is that we see God as this warm, fuzzy God where anything goes and everything's acceptable and we end up with like a liberal approach to Scripture where it's all grace but certainly no truth. And so it's critical that if we're going to invest into the lives of other people that we understand who God is, that we faithfully study God's Word to get a holistic view of who He is as revealed in His Word. The book of Hebrews says that in the past, God revealed himself and he spoke through the prophets. But in these later days, he's revealed himself to us and he's spoken to us by his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation uh, of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so in the Old Testament, we get a picture of of who God is, but then we see uh, God also through Jesus. He's the ultimate expression of who God is. And so if you want to know what God is like, then look at Jesus and you'll see an incredible God. So if we read the scripture from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, we will see a God who's powerful. We'll see a God who's awesome. We'll see a God who's the creator God, a holy God, a God of justice, a God who takes sin seriously. In verse 17, Paul says he's the God, the King eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. The only God, the God who deserves honor and glory forever and ever, the kind of God that all of us will bow our knees and our tongue will confess that he is Lord. We will be in awe of him when he returns. He's a powerful God. But at the same time, God's an incredibly intimate God, a personal God, a God who is love, a God who is of self-sacrifice and mercy and compassion, a God of unbelievable grace. And so it's so important that we understand who God is. Uh, In Timothy's time, it's obvious in this letter that Timothy is immersed in a culture where there are many false teachers. Let me say that nothing's changed. We are still immersed in a culture with many false teachers. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he says these words. He says, The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Let me tell you, church, we've arrived in those days. Our prosperity preaching, our feel-good, self-help, motivational talks, our obsession to be politically correct, which is kind of like our new God. It's full. Our churches are full of it. The problem is that the evangelists have become the people uh, on the project, our social commentators, and they preach their gospel every week. And if we're not careful, we'll just blindly follow along uh, their gospel while at the same time abandoning God's. So important that we know the word of God. In Timothy's time, the false teachers were the legalistic type. And they were teaching um, things that went contrary to what Paul was teaching. That to be saved, you had to keep the law. If you couldn't keep the law, then you couldn't be in relationship with God. It's anti-gospel. They were gravitating to the extreme of legalism. Verse 3 says, Command certain people, Timothy, not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Uh, They they, you know, devote themselves to all sorts of nonsense and controversies rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Uh, These men have departed from these things and they've turned to meaningless talks. They want to be teachers of the law, but they've got no idea what they're talking about. So a pretty strong indictment on these teachers. He then goes to talk about what the law is and what the purpose of the law is. Now we see the law revealed to us in the Old Testament 
And the law actually highlights the fact that we're sinners. Uh, all these laws and regulations, it, it will take you a, a couple of hours after this service to realize you can't keep the law. And so if you are relying on keeping the law or, or doing enough good stuff to earn relationship with God, if we're kind of relying on that, then all of us are in a lot of trouble. None of us are going to be able to earn a relationship with God because we're lawbreakers. The Bible says that when we punish, when we break the law, the punishment we deserve is death, that we have to die for the sins that we've committed. And so the law highlights the fact that we're sinners, but at the same time, it highlights our need for a saviour. That saviour is Jesus. The whole word, Old Testament, New Testament, it all points to Jesus. And Jesus on the cross, he died in our place. He took the punishment you and I deserve for breaking the law over and over and over again. And so when we accept what Christ did for us at the cross, we no longer have to pay the punishment we deserve to pay for our sins because Jesus took it for us. This is the gospel. This is what makes uh, our faith so incredible. We don't have to knock on doors. We don't have to strive and earn and, and be good enough. We just have to put our faith in Jesus and throw ourselves upon his mercy and we will be saved. It's incredible news, isn't it? It's why I love the gospel. It's what makes it so glorious. It's what the gospel is. It's undeserved love. It's grace. You might be here today and you might think, well, well you don't really know me. You, you don't know the things I'm doing. You don't know the things I've done. Uh, if, if you knew all the stuff I've done in my life and the mistakes I've made, if you knew how far away I feel from God, you would understand that I can't be saved. I'm, I'm too far gone. Some people say when they walk into church, the, the roof's going to fall in because of all the stuff they've done wrong. Uh, let me tell you, no one's out of the reach of God. There's no one that God can't save. If you knew that some of the things I think in my head at times, if you knew some of the things I'd done, you wouldn't let me preach. So I'm not going to tell you what they are. <laughs> but that's the thing about grace. It's undeserved love. And I really feel that there's many Christians who say they understand grace, but the truth is they haven't grasped it. They might know it here, but they haven't accepted it here. There's people that, that, you know, you've done stuff in your life that you're ashamed of, and you've gone to God and you've repented and said, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me for those things I've done. But the next day, and the day after, and the year after, and the decade after, you're still feeling guilty about all that stuff. Let me tell you, when, when we repent and come to the Lord and say sorry for what we've done, at that point we're completely forgiven. Bible says our sin is cast into the, the sea of God's forgetfulness. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so our sins are cast away from us. And so if you're feeling guilty over and over again about things you've repented of, let me tell you something really clearly today. That's not God. That's the devil. He's the great accuser. Bible says there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. When you come and repent, it's forgiven, it's forgotten. You are set free to live for him. It's great news. And so I pray today that each and every one of us would get that. We're all in the same boat. We're sinners who can only ever be saved by grace. This is how Paul finishes the chapter. The exact point that Paul rams home so effectively, he says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save perfect people. Is that what it says? No, it says he came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, 
of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out abundantly like a tsunami, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is stunning stuff. We are forgiven. We have received his abundant grace. Paul is saying, if I can be saved, the worst of the worst, then there's nobody who can't be saved. That's great news for everyone here this morning. We see God's intimate love for us in the gospel. And we see his breathtaking investment in us through his son. And so from that, let us be people who receive that incredible grace, but also intimately love others. And from that love, invest in their life for the glory of God. And as we do that, I think God's going to use us for years to come to see people come to know the Lord through people that are constantly being raised up and developed in our church.